morning and welcome to Rising. I had so much fun last Monday that I'm back again and I'm joined by Associate Editor at Reason, Liz Wolf. I'm so happy to be here. I'll be filling in for Robbie today and tomorrow. He'll be back on Wednesday. Over the weekend, we saw thousands of advocates for gun control gather in the, at the March for Our Lives rally in Washington, D.C., New York, and other cities across the country. And just yesterday, the Senate announced a bipartisan group of 20 senators have agreed to a proposal to curb gun violence, which means legislation based on this proposal has a good chance of getting 60 votes on the floor. Republican Senator John Cornyn and Democratic Senator Chris Murphy led the pack, with Murphy giving a breakdown in the framework yesterday. Here's what that includes. Major funding to help states pass and implement crisis intervention orders that will allow law enforcement to take weapons away from people. Billions in new funding for mental health and school safety, including money for building mental health clinics. Close the boyfriend loophole so no domestic abuser can buy a gun if they are convicted of domestic abuse. First ever federal law against gun trafficking and straw purchasing. Enhanced background checks for under 21 buyers. Clarification of the laws regarding who needs to register as a licensed gun dealer. Murphy said drafting this law and passing it would not be easy and added that it would be a long time before it gets to the president's desk. President Biden signals his support for the legislation, saying, quote, I want to thank Senator Chris Murphy and the bipartisan group for their gun safety proposal. It does not do everything that I think is needed, but it reflects important steps in the right direction. Let's get this done. The New York Times makes an important point on the deal. Of the 10 senators supporting the proposal, four are leaving Congress at the end of the year. And five are not up for re-election for another four years. Mitt Romney is the only senator who will actually face voters in 2024. So how do you feel about this? I don't feel particularly good about it, frankly. Oh, good. I mean, these are, these are relatively marginal changes. These are pretty marginal proposals. And if you actually look at the, the recent awful mass shootings that we dealt with, which, by the way, are not just Uvalde and Buffalo, but also the terrible church shooting in California right. um, that we saw, you know, Taiwanese Americans were attacked. And then I think that same weekend, there were three different shootings uh, in Milwaukee outside of the Bucks game. Yep. Uh, and ultimately, I think 20 people were shot. I don't think anybody died, but like these were all four examples of horrible gun violence happening in very close proximity to one another. When I look at the profiles of those shooters, I don't think that the bipartisan proposal currently being uh, introduced would have actually stopped those people. Thank you. Liz, we are, <laughs> we are on the same page. Really? Yes, on gun are. control? Yes. <laughs> Surprisingly, yes. I, you know, I am in favor of there being some kind of gun regulation in a massive way that prevents the people that we see conducting these kinds of shooting, getting access to these semi-automatic yeah. weapons. But as a criminal defense attorney, I'm always wary of the fact that after these kinds of things, they pass laws that really just lead to more criminalization of the same exact that kinds of populations, black and brown people, you know, they, this law specifically, it targets like illegal purchases of guns. Straw purchasing, which is already illegal, might I add? Exa exactly. <laughs> and it has also, nothing to do with these shootings. And actually, on the topic of the Milwaukee shootings, a significant uh, way that so many of those, that the three different shooters there were able to acquire their guns was through straw purchasing. But like, there were already laws on the books that prevented, that exactly. ostensibly prevent that from being possible. Exactly. And clearly it didn't stop them. And a big issue for me with this is the, the juvenile, the background checks. So mm -hmm. juveniles criminal record are sealed. They're sealed yeah. for a reason. They're supposed to be sealed. They're supposed to be expunged. And this only allows for the populations. We already have tens and tens of thousands of black and brown children in schools being arrested, being criminalized. And this really only leads to more criminalization of those populations. And that doesn't really address the major shootings there. So I'm not really a fan. Absolutely. I mean, one thing that I keep coming back to is like with the uh, California church shooting, which by the way, California, not really a state that's known for its lax and lenient <laughs> gun laws. Right. 
But in that situation, the person who conducted the shooting, which I don't want to you know, continue to publicize their name, yeah. he was a licensed security guard who, even if you had really restrictive gun control, he would have had it. He would have had access to it. I believe he was licensed in Nevada. Um, but like, you know, clearly their whatever vetting process they went through, and even in a, a highly restrictive gun control environment, he's the type of person who would continue to have access to this. Right. Um, that's really concerning to me. And then you even look at what types of laws would have possibly prevented the, the Buffalo shooter. New York already has red flag laws New York, on the books. And, and New York so has some often, of the most stringent gun laws in absolutely. the country. Absolutely. I mean, I know this because I'm trying to get a gun in New York City. And it's not <laughs> I, going so well. I know this because if I represent you and you've got a gun, you're going to jail. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, it's a good thing we've, yeah. we've linked up. But no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge problem. And if you actually look at like the way red flag laws are crafted, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, this is often something that can be used uh, in domestic dispute type situations where a member, you know, uh, somebody in, in another person's family can really uh, you know, attempt to weaponize red flag laws exactly. to wrongly revoke people's gun rights exactly. in a situation where perhaps they're not actually a danger to themselves and others, but perhaps it's a spurned spouse or something like that, exactly. or a family member who's trying to do some sort of petty vindictive ploy to get back at them. Yeah. Red flag laws, I think in an ideal world, you know, they would work 100% as intended and they would be uh, written narrow in a, in a very narrow manner and highly specific and enforced well, but like that's not actually the world we live in. Right. What I expect to happen is they, they, they're going after these illegal, they said the flow of illegal guns into states. But the reality is the people are getting their guns, they're getting them from places where they lawfully can get it. And what's really gonna happen is you'll see more criminalization of people for possession laws, black and brown people mm -hmm. in New York City, places where you just can't have any gun at all. These people aren't necessarily committing any crime, but the way our laws are crafted, they're not allowed to have guns, they're not allowed to have anything. So instead of going after the people like who are conducting these Buffalo shooters, who, uh, shootings who will get their guns lawfully and travel to a place like New York City, all that's gonna happen is New York City is just gonna ramp up in places like that, uh, penalizing and criminalizing people that are not conducting these shootings. Yeah, I mean, welcome to the return of stop and frisk, right? Thank you. Who wins? Listen, Liz, I'm so glad to see us on the same page this morning. I was thinking about this all night. I mean, what do you think is actually, like, what would actually be a much more viable proposal that would actually prevent these four different examples of shootings that I named? So I think there's not a coincidence that, the new, uh, that America is the largest manufacturer of guns in the first place and we have these gun issues, right? Yeah. I think we should have, um, first of all, I, I have a major issue with this idea that we have a constitutional right to AR-15s. Oh, you're an, you're an anti-Second Amendment guy? No, I'm not oh, okay. an anti- It's not that I'm anti-Second Amendment. No, yeah. it's just that in terms of what the, your constitutional rights are, and if you look at this from the nerd law level, it's yeah. just that you don't actually have to, it doesn't say you have to have these kinds of guns or that we can't have more stringent regulations yeah. or that we can't prevent people from getting access to these kinds of weapons, but they seem very hesitant and not poised for us to get some kind of regulation like that. So I don't think they would actually pass anything I want, but I don't think these marginal changes will lead to preventing the kind of mass shootings we're seeing and we want to stop. Absolutely. It feels honestly like a lot of these um, these legislators are really trying to get credit for yes. having done something. And uh, if there's one thing that I'm a little cautious of uh, and, and scared of as a libertarian, it's laws that are hastily passed that are kind of BS laws that don't yes. actually do all that much to target the specific problem. And we have a lot of those. Um, and, and it's done. I think, you know, we, we focus a little bit and the New York Times rightfully pointed out that the Republicans who are in favor of this are not up for re-election. Well, how many of the Democrats are doing this because they are up for re-election and they want to be able to then go back to their constituents and say, look what I did. Look, I made real also, significant change. And also like, true. 
is it actually something that will reduce gun violence in these cities? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think what that. happens a lot of times, we see a lot, anytime there are major, major issues, and you see from the federal government, they propose these uh, these bills that, you know, they sound nice. In theory, yeah. what they say it's aimed towards doing is good, but people aren't going to look into the actual, you know, nitty gritty and the tedious uh, uh, realities of how it works in application, and I think that's what we're seeing here. It's easy for Biden to say, this is the most historic, you know, gun, <laughs> you know, gun reform, gun safety laws passed. I'm like, I'll give you some credit in the fact that you're trying to do something that's better than doing nothing, I suppose, but this doesn't actually go towards that. And in fact, I think what's more likely to happen for Biden and Democrats in the negative is it's going to lead to more criminalization of poor black and brown people, and that's what their base is going to criticize. So I'm not sure if yeah. it's going to accomplish what they want. Oh, absolutely. It's yeah. like we have this inability to notice cause and effect. And yet we, we causes. and we do this excavation years down the road where we're like, well, golly, <laughs> this uh, highly restrictive policy where we, we empowered the police to uh, surveil people. Uh, hmm, who did it hit? Ooh. Who did it hit super hard, right? Liz, we're right here. Yeah, I mean, it's not good. It's yes. not good. And as Congress weighs its own response to mass shootings and gun violence, Uvalde is also having its own reckoning. According to reports, the Uvalde School District announced plans to hire additional officers for the upcoming school year for each of its school campuses. This comes even after reports of the police waiting over an hour to enter the building as kids were trapped inside and killed by the shooter. How is the response to this to hire more cops? It is insane. It is not surprising, but it, it is insane. I've said before that I think this is the clearest demonstration of mm -hmm. police ineptitude. They have, in Uvalde, they have a police department, mm -hmm. a SWAT team. The school <laughs> district has its own police department. <laughs> over 20 different law enforcement agencies showed up to the scene, and they still waited over an hour. Was it really over 20 different Over law 20 different law enforcement agencies? agencies. I wrote a Teen Vogue op-ed on the topic. It's astonishing to me that somehow people feel as though the response to this is more policing and more police presence as opposed to, especially because the police department has to some degree stopped cooperating with investigators. They have. They've and, actively said they won't. Yeah. Yes. And, and really, I mean, they've embarrassed themselves. They've not covered themselves in glory in any way whatsoever. I mean, any situation where you have people handcuffing parents who are trying to heroically jump into the school to attempt to rescue their kids. Handcuffing, like, arresting, tasing, pepper spraying is a, is it's, a shame. It's one of the most disturbing and like it legitimately like makes me emotional to think about what yes. would happen if like cops were were physically hindering your ability to go rescue your child yes. and be protective of them and criminalizing you in the moment having yeah. more anger and angst towards you than the shooter they have their yeah. backs turned to the school as they yell at you and they and they uh they threaten to arrest you it's insane honestly i think this is a slap in the face to the people i think an important note is this is a this is a town that respects policing right this is a town that put 40 percent of its uh, uh budget into the police department and here the police that they rely on they were already comfortable they want police at the schools they have this the police that they relied on not only didn't help their children not only didn't save their children but actively stopped them stopped the other agencies that showed up border patrol said they were baffled yeah. they said they were baffled that they wouldn't let them in so i think that this is this is an insult to the parents to to do oh. this for this to be the response to this like Absolutely. if anything heads need to roll i need to hear <laughs> about people getting fired districts getting overturned i need to hear about restructuring not giving more money well, this is the perennial problem with whenever there's a tragedy and in the wake of a tragedy, you pass, you, you do all these uh, hastily considered policy proposals. Yes. The response here is absolutely not to have more cops hired, just as the response to the Parkland shooting was not to uh, empower school resource, resource officers uh, to a greater degree or to, to increase the numbers of SROs that I are in schools. Agree. We see SROs as a significant source of um, you know juveniles getting criminal records. Exactly. Uh, and, and it's very unclear to me how 
people think that that's the appropriate response when right. in reality like this is not this has not been um, well considered and ultimately like we need much more of an investigation into what actually went wrong 100%. with the cops here because I mean this type of thing like the the citizens of Uvalde should be able to actually rely on their cops and exactly. the fact that they betrayed them in the moment when they needed them the absolute most it's despicable exactly in a logical world you know you implement a method you try something you can shoot people for trying right you try something you believe in <laughs> something policing. can't shoot people <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but you, you you have this method in place you say okay we're gonna have three different three different police departments for this town we're yeah. gonna have all this in place we're gonna put our money here and then when a tragedy actually does happen also important to note everybody involved was trained for school shootings specifically the police departments they've gone through training merely months before right? literally literally <laughs> just months January. before the, the students had trained for it the te everybody had trained for it and the only yeah. people um, behaving incompetently are the police right but you have this method in place and then it fails drastically in some other responses Let's double down on that. Let's yeah. let's get more police. More that would really help. Like despite the fact that we had tens and tens and tens and tens of police sitting here chilling, yeah. backs to the school. Yes, let's do that. It's insane. I mean, I I, I do want to give. Uh, do I want to give credit or do I mean it's, it does seem like some reports have emerged where um, they were waiting for higher up instruction and for more tactical gear and there's also the sort of interesting theory that I've seen um, floated that since this town did have a SWAT department mm -hmm. there was some sense of oh we the normal cops ought to be waiting for the SWAT response because SWAT will be the ones that are most adept at handling this. Except that However, would work as a theory yeah. if the yeah. fact that Border Patrol hadn't showed up so the call 1130. It didn't, it didn't work. I it didn't understand work. the logic but then there's also this question of like okay, well, when you give uh, SWAT teams to towns that small, yeah. to what degree are you then uh, disincentivizing actual normal cops from doing their job? Right. That's that. And listen, and, and I need would, SWAT teams also. <laughs> that's another thing. I would accept that uh, that rationale or believe it if I didn't feel very much so that it was just uh, an excuse being thrown out now because based on the facts, it just doesn't make sense, right? At 11.30 is when they get the 911 call. At 11.31 yeah. is when the resource officer drives past the shooter and follows a teacher. Between yeah. 12 p.m. and 12 p.m., that's when Border Patrol shows up. They are there and 20 different other law enforcement agencies show up and for over an hour, the local police would not let them do anything. Yeah. So it's they had tactical shields. Border Patrol showed up with tactical shields and they despicable. still had to wait for an hour. It's really despicable police malfeasance, yes. you know, truly. Um, I'll tell you what's on my radar next. So Liz, what's on your radar? Well, how could it be that Americans simultaneously distrust their government, believing it's wasteful with their hard-earned dollars, but they also want to empower federal government bureaucrats to do more? Just 20% say they trust the government in Washington to do the right thing just about always or most of the time, reports Pew in recently released polling data, noting that this finding has actually held steady over time, changing very little since George W. Bush's second term in office. But only a measly 8% of survey respondents described the federal government as responsive to the needs of ordinary Americans. And get this, just 6% say the phrase, careful with taxpayer money, describes the federal government extremely or very well. Another 21% say this describes the government somewhat well. That's less than a third of Americans total, offering even tepid approval of the government's money handling. But perhaps people feel this way because inflation has recently ticked up to 8.6%. Or perhaps because Biden keeps blaming this pocketbook pain on Putin instead of acknowledging that his stimulus largesse got us into this mess. Or perhaps they feel this way because a new Government Accountability Office report found that 20% of federal unemployment relief handed out due to the pandemic was wasted, ending up in the hands of fraudsters or people who were actually technically ineligible.
People broadly say the government responds well to natural disasters. About 70% of respondents to Pew agreed with the statement. People also give the government generally high marks for keeping the country safe from terrorists. Some 68% of respondents feel this way, though it's really hard to say whether they're referencing TSA's loving pat-downs, which statistically speaking actually do a very poor job of protecting us from terrorist attacks, or whether they're referring to something else. The government gets bad marks, however, on both setting immigration policy and alleviating poverty, with three quarters of respondents in each category expressing dismay at government competence in both areas. You might think that all of this scares people off from wanting their government to do more for them, but no. A staggering 59% of survey respondents from both parties say it is the government's job to protect people from themselves. But who does all this protecting? Who do we empower to intervene in our lives for our own good? To tell us what not to eat, drink, smoke, and snort? To tell us where to put our money when we earn it? And how much money accumulation is too much? And where we ought to build our houses? And how we ought to educate our children? Well, government officials, of course. But 65% of all respondents reported that all or most people who pursue elected office do so to serve their own personal interests. So why, again, would we trust them? It is these people, the self-serving ones who we call politicians, who have failed historically to deliver results and been so wasteful with taxpayer money. It's these people that the majority of Americans think will use their power to smartly protect people from themselves. What? Of course, lots of people on both sides of the aisle have inconsistent political beliefs that don't logically follow. Public opinion polling consistently shows us that Americans don't really know that much about the inner workings of government or the details of specific policies because they're too busy living their normal lives and pursuing work and play, which is exactly what they should be doing. Being able to exist somewhat apart from politics is a sign of a healthy republic. Hopefulness that the government can deliver and that politicians will rise to the occasion is not something to disparage. We shouldn't become weary and defeatist in response to government fecklessness. But we should perhaps be a little tougher on politicians. We should expect a little more prudence from them when they're spending our money. And we should, at absolute minimum, re-examine the basic premise that we want them to protect us from ourselves when they've repeatedly proven themselves incapable of almost all of the basic functions we elected them to perform. It really disturbs me when I look at this polling data that people are so inconsistent with, with the types of things that uh, they expect government to do, uh, but also giving the government such consistently low marks in some of the most important areas. I mean, setting immigration policy, poverty mm -hmm. alleviation, administering public housing and welfare. These are things that we absolutely, I mean, I'm a libertarian, so I'm supposed to be all like burn it all down. But like, to some degree, man, I walk past, we're both New Yorkers, I walk past public housing projects in my neighborhood. And I think it is good that people in my neighborhood have access to that type of housing, and I want it to be administered but, well. I don't want there look to be the paint right? and asbestos, right? Exactly. Exactly. I think that goes to our earlier point when we talked about trying a method, seeing that it's not working out well, and then doubling down on it instead of doing something different. You know, I do... So I don't agree with the, the idea that the government is there to protect us from ourselves. I think that yeah. very American concept is why you have so much government overreach, why you have so much of this large criminal system. So much of what I see in the criminal system are things that are just regular, you know, regular life disputes that the, the government has no business getting involved in. So I do agree with you on that point. I think, though, I think the government is there to serve the people. And I think mm -hmm. that um, kind of reconciles this uh, 
this disagreement, you know what I mean, amongst yeah. the people and about what's happening, right? I think people expect their government to do for them, to do for them, and so they keep trying to put their faith there, and in so many ways, we don't have any choices about the taxes, right? I don't, yeah. I, trust me. Well, speak for yourself. Ciao. We can all get creative. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I, I think you're pointing to something interesting, though. I think the libertarian notion is a little bit more negative rights-oriented, whereas yeah. you're talking about a more positive rights conception of, like, I'm interested in what the government shouldn't do for me, yes. and, and the things that they cannot abridge or, or infringe on Whereas you're talking a little bit more about what the government ought to proactively do, especially exactly. once they've collected our money and, and deposited it into their, their coffers. Uh, yes. And I think, I think it's tough because like one of the things that I really appreciate about the sort of like technocrat leftist types like the Matt Iglesias's of the world mm -hmm. is that they actually are somewhat interested in measuring results and they are somewhat interested in paying attention to when the government experiments with X policy. Um, what are the outcomes? They yeah. A-B test things. They, they have a natural proclivity toward that. And for whatever reason, that's not shared by most people, especially most people on the left. Um, I think it. I think there is. Um, I think there's probably a divergence between you know what we want to see and how uh, how these things get measured. What are the metrics for them and how um, I guess genuine or disingenuous we find it based on what like media spin can be. Yeah. But um, I do agree as far as like poverty, immigration, all these different things, right? You do embolden this government that you want to help with these things. You are paying all this kinds of money, and the exact groups that most need help, most need resources, are not receiving that help, right? Like like you said, we yeah. do have NYCHA housing, but you can see, you know, NYCHA housing when you see it. You can see the quality of it versus, you know, everything mm -hmm. else. So I, I don't disagree that, you know, America's emboldened a large federal government, just as I also think the same thing for state governments, right? I pay, I pay, I pay a lot of New York taxes, federal and we state. You pay for the privilege of living in the city. I pay for the privilege of living in the city and lining NYPD's pockets, and I have a big also issue with MTA, that. Also MTA, though, you know, we pay for the subway. Well, one thing I actually think about a lot that's it's a very concerning sort of political sentiment uh, tide shift is the degree to which we've really, in recent years, moved away from wanting things to be means tested. Mm -hmm. And in my ideal world, uh, we would do a whole bunch less of handing out money. We wouldn't do COVID stimulus checks uh, given to people. Um, but one of the ways that we could even marginally improve on these things is making things means tested. Because, mm -hmm. you know, uh, a, a family of relatively high earning lawyers who live in like an expensive city in America probably don't need government box handed to them uh, in I the do form agree. of stimulus. Testing. But how many of them are the ones that are really getting getting that right? Like, I mean, uh, there's a huge a, a huge component of America's upper middle class. I really think like one way we could actually like streamline this and be much more efficient with government dollars is if we return to the era almost like the 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 90s and the early aughts of wanting things to be mean te means tested as opposed to being universal. We see this now with AOC wanting universal um, you know college debt relief and stuff like that. And it's like, well, why are we doing that for my friend who uh, is a lawyer at a white shoe law firm in New York when, or my, my friend who's a doctor who works out on Long Island now, when in reality, they're not really the types of people who need that debt forgiven because they make $300,000. But maybe that's, uh, so as a lawyer, as a lawyer that yeah. works in this field, right, a black lawyer, and I know lots of black and people of color that are able to enter enter these fields because they were able to get student loan debts, yeah. right? They otherwise didn't have access to it. And yeah, they might be in this profession now, but they aren't originally in the same places of privilege that other people are in. Mm -hmm. They don't, they they do need this debt relief. They do have families and people are that they they're making, supporting. Are they making six figures now or are they making? Uh, no, I mean, I sure, I sure I'm not. I'm a black lawyer. <laughs> no, I'm well, because, sure not. Like... I, think, I think you're touching on something that's important, like something that I like about like 
uh, the Marxist. Am I allowed to say that on air? Like, I like the Marxists a little bit. But no, something that I like about the Marxists is the degree to which they're paying attention to the class component. And so, like, one thing that I think you're you're tapping into is that, like, not all lawyers are created equal. Not all lawyers are making $300,000 yes. a year at a white shoe law firm. There's lots of different paths that people may pursue. And perhaps even having, like, public service loan forgiveness is something that incentivizes people to pursue some yes. of those paths. But I think the thing that we really need to be doing in our political rhetoric is saying, okay, like, are you actually able to afford repayment of this debt right. or not? Uh, and, and I think it's important to be pretty clear about that. And we could have some amount of federal government largesse handed out to people who legitimately come from situations of poverty. Yeah. But like, I don't know, the people that I'm talking about are people, rich people right. who will have their loans forgiven uh, when in reality their salaries could forgive their loans and they could just stop going out to fancy Michelin star dinner. I feel that and I get that. But I guess for me, it's about not placing the focus there. There are a significant amount of people that could really benefit um, from the from having their loans forgiven. And when you think about even like the public interest repayment pro program, I don't have any student loans. Just for the record. I just want to throw that out there so no one thinks <laughs> I'm advocating for my own personal interests, right? But I look at, you know, a lot of my colleagues and stuff, they are stuck working in public interest for 10 years. That's a long time yeah. to because be in a... Because attached to public exactly. Exactly. Yeah. In a not lucrative field and not able to move and not having this mobility. So yeah, they took out all these loans. They took out at least, I think the average law school debt is like $110,000. That's a lot of money. They've got all these loans and then they're forced to work in like public interest for yeah. the longest where they're making shillings. I, they pay us in shillings. Yeah. <laughs> <I> <laughs> like, yes. That's why I don't work for them. Hey, listen, you get it, right? So they're forced to do that because they don't have any options. So I do think there has to be. Well, but they do have the option. Like they consented to that arrangement and that they judge that to be a good deal and they get to rejudge that at any time if they want to. Maybe, but when you, you know, we have to look at like the true voluntariness of a choice. Like, yes, they made a choice, they consented Ooh. to it, but let's get super close. <laughs> Ooh, like, but do they really, really, really truly have these options, right? Like, listen, I get it. I'm yeah. not, I'm not totally unsympathetic to the position that like, okay, this is a privilege, this is a benefit that you can take out these loans. I'm from a country where you can't get some loans. Yeah. If you can't afford it, you can't go. So I do get that. But I think in a large way, when you look at people are going to take the options they have, if you know what I mean, if I can go to college, but it means I'm going to take out this large sum of money and then work with the, you know, the parameters that I'm given, okay, but if I could get these forgiven and maybe, you know, put this money, I'm not just working to pay back all this debt and I can put this money back into the economy, I can, you know, uh, incentivize it in this way. But who forgives it? I forgive it with my taxpayer dollars when I busted ass to graduate college in two years instead of four with no debt taken on but, by working my way through it. Like, see, it's... But if we, do we want to go through here. a life of, a life of, well, I had to do it and it's not fair. Well, I mean, that's not, I'm not interested yeah. in like the pulling the ladder up after you type thing, but I am interested in like, there's this, there's this, this basic component of like our, our federal government, like our debt and our deficit is absolutely enormous. Mm -hmm. We just keep attempting to spend money on things and we haven't accounted for it. Yeah. And at some point this catches up with us. And in fact, we're seeing stimulus, like the, the stimulus checks that led to inflation as an example of this, a very salient example of this Those catching stimulus up checks or barely shillings? I don't know if I'm going to blame them for, in, I will for blame inflation. Them for everything. Oh, Anyways, no. But that segues If anything, perfectly. they owe me more money. <laughs> that segues <laughs> perfectly, though. The average cost of gas is now over $5 a gallon. Associate Professor of Economics at Denison University, Fadel Kaboub, joins us next to weigh in. Gas prices officially hit an average of $5 per gallon nationwide this weekend, setting a new all-time record. As of this morning, prices at the pump are up over 50 cents a gallon from a week ago and a whopping $2 a gallon from a year ago. On Friday, President Biden called out oil and gas companies for exacerbating the gas crisis, telling reporters, quote, Exxon made more money than God this year. Let's watch. 
We're going to make sure that everybody knows Exxon's profits. Why don't you tell them what Exxon's profits were this year, this quarter? Exxon made more money than God this year. And by the way, nothing's changed. And they're not, by the way, one thing I want to say about the oil companies. They talk about how we have, they have 9,000 permits to drill. They're not drilling. Why aren't they drilling? Because they make more money not producing more oil. The price goes up, number one. And number two, the reason they're not drilling is they're buying back their own stock, which should be taxed, quite frankly, buying back their own stock and making no new investments. So uh, I, uh, I always thought Republicans are for investment. Exxon, start investing, start paying your taxes. Thanks. Joining us now to weigh in is Fadin Kaboob. He's an associate professor at of economics. Run me back. <laughs> it's Fadin Kaboob. Joining us now to weigh in is Fadin Kaboob. He's an associate professor of economics at Denison University and president of the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity. Welcome to Rising. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. So what do you think about Biden's uh, little soundbite there? Do you uh, truly think that uh, Exxon has more uh, money than God and that they ought to be taxed accordingly? Well, what's sort of embarrassing about hearing the, presidents of the uh, president of the United States say something like that is it sounds like the average Joe down the street who's completely powerless and doesn't have the capacity to tax and regulate the abusive market power of, right. uh, of corporate America. Uh, my question to the president is, what are you going to do about it? What's your party going to do about it? What's Congress going to do about it? It's not like this is surprising when we, you know, allow corporations to, uh, uh, to dominate and to concentrate market power and to take advantage of uh, a global economic crisis to, to price gouge. What do we expect? We get this. So it's, uh, it's sort of, as I said, embarrassing to hear the president of the most powerful country on the planet uh, complain like he's the average citizen. Yeah, I will say, you know, I understand that there's not a lot or everything he can do unilaterally, but Joe Biden does have a tendency to get up on his pulpit and talk as though he's not like the manager of the country. <laughs> it's always like, we need to do something about this. And it's like, you mean, you mean you? <laughs> well, I'm curious. And so also, you, you attribute to, this to, to put price. In... Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, to put things in context, I mean, uh, we're still 40, 45% uh, we have 40, 45% lower gas prices than European countries, Australia, other places, except we feel the pain and the average person feels the pain more because we rely heavily on uh, driving. We don't have resilient public transportation systems. We don't have social safety nets comparable to what people have in Australia and, and, and Europe. So we feel the pain even though prices are still much, much lower than, than other countries. So this speaks to the long-term kind of negligence that we have in this country in terms of the, the working class, the middle class, our right. transportation infrastructure and so on. I mean, some of that's due to the fact that the U.S. is astonishingly spread out. And so our, our system of transit is going to be fundamentally different than that of France. But I'm curious, you attribute some of this to uh, price gouging, but not to perhaps the more obvious thing, which is inflation, as well as the sort of decline uh, in number of oil rigs that currently are operating in the U.S. And then one thing that I always think about uh, when considering this is the degree to which there was so much opposition to toward the Keystone Pipeline and other things that would have delivered Canadian oil to the U.S. in, in a highly efficient manner. Obviously, construction on that has not finished. But, you know, this is something where there was significant political opposition uh, 
that, that really hindered our ability to, to get that type of oil. Why are you attributing this to price gouging as opposed to all of these other factors at play? So there's a couple of other long-term structural issues related to the energy sector that mm -hmm. we need to pay attention to. So number one, uh, we have to remember uh, Hurricane Ida uh, actually uh, did quite a bit of disruption to the refining capacity of the United States. For example, in December of uh, 2021, we had 40% less uh, inventories and in, in refineries in the U.S. than a year earlier. Uh, number two, uh, you have... Uh, the pandemic recovery, which added to demand right at the same time. Uh, and number three, we have the, the oil industry essentially using this opportunity to teach everybody a lesson that you can't live without us. You can't live without. Uh, so they reduced their uh, investment in infrastructure to keep mm -hmm. up with demand, not because they didn't have the financing, not because they, they didn't have the, the resources, but because they wanted to make up for the lost revenue of the last couple of years of the pandemic and use this to apply political pressure specifically to get things like the pipelines approved by uh, Congress to make sure that the public feels the pain and is left with no choice but to accept that climate activists are the problem, that uh, those who protect the environment are the ones who are causing this uh, pain at, at the pump. So we have to be cognizant of all of these issues. And then finally, of course, you can't uh, neglect the fact that there was a global energy crisis uh, before even the Ukraine conflict, before even the sanctions on, on Russia. We have to remember that China uh, last year imposed brand new um, safety restrictions on coal mining that completely freaked out the coal mining industry in China. And many of them had to shut down because they feared the sanctions from, from the Chinese government. So that caused blackouts across China because the coal industry was uh, you know, paralyzed for a while. And that shifted China's demand to alternative fuels, oil and gas, and that drove uh, energy prices up uh, just because of the, the the situation in China. And of course, you add the Ukraine crisis and, and the sanctions that, that followed, and you have global energy prices going through the roof and commodity prices going through the roof. So all of these factors uh, explain the, the overall inflation, the supply chain disruptions obviously affect, uh, affect inflation across the board. So it's not just the Keystone pipeline and kind of this is the narrative of the oil and gas industry. They want to get their project done and they use any opportunity to justify it, neglecting the fact that we have a, a global climate crisis that we need to deal with immediately uh, rather than you know wait uh, uh, until the, the pipeline is built and we have even more oil and gas infrastructure and more stranded assets uh, to, to drive us faster towards the cliff when it comes to climate change. I mean, re reduced supply, like what you're talking about with the crisis in Ukraine and, and Russia, is absolutely a contributing factor in this. But like one of the ways to alleviate that reduced supply is via the Keystone Pipeline. But, you know. But I do, <laughs> I do to his point, right? It's we not going to be an immediate very, relief either. It's not going to be an immediate absolutely. relief. And we do have this existing, existed climate control in the same way we see, you know, a stall on the pipeline. We also see a stall on meaningful initiatives to address, you know, um, climate control. So we there do. is that. Um, what do you want there to are short-term solutions that we can introduce immediately to deal with the crisis without pipelines, because it's not like we actually have shortages. We don't have lines of people waiting at the at the gas station. There is actually uh, gas 
it's just more expensive. Right. So one of the things we can do is, you know, uh, temporarily at least remove federal uh, gas taxes, state gas taxes. That That's not, uh, you know, a massive relief. I mean, 18 cents a gallon for federal taxes in some states up to 50 or 60 cents a gallon. That's a little bit of relief. But you can encourage more people to work remotely. You can encourage more people to take public transportation for free in, 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 in some right. major cities. Well, but you can actually how- do something about this in the short term and you can support the most vulnerable people with direct tax credits right. or relief checks to get to work if there's no other option so the federal government does have solutions uh, congress has solutions president biden has solutions they just don't want to go that route and i do think in the long term it does incentivize uh, um, incentivize us investing in public transportation in these methods because we would be in a different position right and obviously the people most feeling um this hurt and this impact are working class people lower class people uh lower economic uh class people who who feel this in their households, they feel this in and the gas prices cutting into the amount of money they would spend on buying food and all these different things. So I do think um, it incentivizes us to invest in public transportation. Americans are feeling the squeeze, not just at the gas pump and the grocery store though, but in the housing market as well. Redfin data finds that nationally listed rents for apartments have increased 15% from last year. The median rent for apartments on the market jumped above $2,000 a month for the first time. NPR reports that rent is up more than 30% in markets including Austin, Seattle, Cincinnati, and Nashville. What do you guys think about this, and and how does inflation and and the sort of situation that that we've gotten into play into the pain that people are feeling when it comes to housing prices? Well, I live in New York City, so rent has been breaking my back for quite some time. And I've heard recently, I think our median rent has risen all the way to $4,000 in Manhattan, which is astronomical. So I think we're all feeling that. The interesting thing is, though, the degree to which it's also affecting smaller cities where people are less accustomed to this. I mean, I split my time between Austin and New York, and it's been quite sad seeing the degree to which people have been driven out of Austin. But at the same time, we're also seeing housing supply being terribly constrained by terrible city regulations and incredibly long permitting processes. And uh, it really doesn't appear to be alleviating soon. What do you think? Well, when you when it comes to every inflation pressure point you can see in the U.S. economy, you can break it down into two categories. One is the shortage of productive capacity that has to do with skilled labor, materials, inputs, so the disruptions to the global supply chain affects it, energy prices will affect it. So that's one component. The good news about that component is that we can deal with it by investing strategically, not uh, reducing spending, investing strategically to uh, release more resources into that particular sector. But the second source of inflation pressure usually has to do with concentration of market power or abuse of market power, to to be more specific. And that's certainly true in the real estate industry. And it has to do also with the financial industry concentration in the rental market over the last uh, 10 years after the uh, global financial crisis after 2008. So these are things that lawmakers can address with strategic investments. These are certainly not things that the Federal Reserve Bank will address by raising interest rates. How does raising the interest rate going to unclog the global supply chain? How does raising the interest rate going to end the conflict in the Ukraine? How does raising the interest rate uh, going to address the abuse of market power in particular industries? So we have to recognize that the tools for addressing the root cause of inflation are actually in the hands of the 535 people we sent to Washington, D.C., a government of the people, by the people, for the people, like it's supposed to be, not by the super PACs, for the super PACs, 
So we have to recognize that fundamentally we have a, an issue with the democratic process of who's in charge of providing relief to the American public. It's Congress. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our rising panel joins us next. Stay with us. As we gear up for the 2022 midterms, many are already asking, should President Joe Biden run again in 2024? According to the New York Times, nearly 50 Democratic leaders across the country are already saying no, citing frustration with Biden's struggle to advance most of his agenda and his age. When asked if she would back President Biden in 2024, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would only say that she would entertain the idea when the time comes. She also had this to say about the changing dynamics of the Democratic Party. I believe that every single year, every single one of us as a voter has the possibility to elect a representative that best suits them. Um, and, you know, I have been primaried by the Democratic establishment. I had a three million plus dollar primary challenge in 2020, and I took my case to um, to my constituency. And I think what's really important here is that we, you know, I don't believe that if you get elected once to Congress that we should be elected in perpetuity forever um, and that our party is changing, our party is dynamic. And right now, millennials are deeply underrepresented in Congress compared to baby boomers and Gen Xers back uh, when they were our age, frankly. And at the end of the day, we need to have a generational shift in the United States Congress in order for us to have a policy shift in the United States Congress. Democratic strategist Colin Ruggiero and founder of Wrong Speak Publishing, Adam Coleman, are here with us to weigh in. Welcome to Rising. Morning. Thank you. So, Colin, what do you think? Should Biden run in 2024? Yeah, look, I think it's an interesting question. And I think if he's going to run or he's not going to run, we're not going to know anything official until the very last minute. Um, I think what's interesting to examine and where what AOC says is somewhat true if Biden runs again, and so does Donald Trump, then we have two 80-year-olds vying for one of the most difficult jobs in the entire world, which is the United States presidency. And I think we've got to take a look at the fact that that office is a very difficult, very challenging office. And you know, not only do you need to have the experience to do it, but you also have to have the energy and the ability to communicate with the American people what it is you want to actually get accomplished. And look, Joe Biden, as AOC said, has done a fairly good job. I think where the administration has fallen down significantly is being able to communicate what those accomplishments have been and where they are moving in a way that the American people are actually hearing and receiving and understanding. How has he done a good job if inflation is at 8.6% year over year? And that's not, you know, particularly unprecedented. We've seen quite a few months of this. Like how, how can the, the progress report be like A, B plus? <clears throat> yeah, look, I think that's a great question. And I think it's a fair question. And I think that they have a lot to do to address inflation and they've got to figure it out. And they, and they need to do it without causing a recession that is extraordinarily painful. The economy is on fire right now. And if we look at that fact that, you know, we've got record job creation, we've got um, wages, especially for traditionally low income wage earners, up double what they were pre-2020. We've got Hispanic new businesses started at a rate that ha we haven't seen since for more than a decade. And we've got the first time since 1972, the American economy actually outperformed the Chinese economy. These are all really good things. The problem is nobody really knows them. And if you and we've also passed a historic infrastructure bill. I mean, it's the largest infrastructure investment in almost ever. And if you consider all of those things getting done, 
he's actually done a pretty good job. Inflation is a problem. Now, look, when you know, this is a problem not only in the United States, but also around the world. When you print money to support an economy that's in COVID, right, you lessen the value of the particular dollar. So we'll see what happens when this kind of quantitative uh, retraction process happens from the Fed and, and, and how we move forward. But look, you know, inflation is not the only factor, although it is a big one. But to your point, right, you said nobody really knows it. If at the end of the day we, we put a president in place because we want them to change the society, we want to feel this progress, if people aren't feeling it, they feel super dissatisfied with him, I think his, his approval ratings are at an all-time low, doesn't that really speak to whether or not he's making, you know, these great waves or this great change that we want to see? What do you, what do you think, Adam? Well, it's exactly that. If, the, if they thought he was doing a great job, they would obviously want him to be reelected. And it's a lot easier for the American people to reelect someone they're already familiar with. So to me, it sounds like the Democrats are realizing that, for one, the people don't believe he's doing a good job. His polling is showing that he's not doing a good job. And I don't really believe that there are many other Democrats that are popular enough um, and are seen in, in, a, in a big light uh, for the American people to get behind, especially because everybody has been rah-rah Joe Biden this entire time, and in many ways gaslighting, trying to tell you that everything is good. Um, Colin is saying that the economy is on fire and people see that. Um, you know, for me, politics is less about the, the culture wars. It's more about economics. People easily overlook someone who's distasteful, uh, who's controversial, as long as the economics are good. If COVID didn't happen, Donald Trump would be in office without a doubt. And he would have gotten independence and maybe even some Democrats to vote for him because before COVID, the economy was doing really well. So right now, with rising gas prices and, you know, continually rising gas prices with inflation, um, with spending, I don't know, $60 billion or so to give to a country that's in wartime. Um, I don't know if the American people want more of this. You know, He's I don't know if... I'm sorry, you can go. Ahead. Yeah, I struggle with that a little bit because when President Trump was in office, I mean, he was somebody who was very much uh, starting and, and then escalating a trade war with China that to some degree led to some of the supply chain crunch that we've been in now, obviously exacerbated by Biden's economically illiterate policies and by the pandemic. Um, but I struggle a little bit with the sort of the idea that like Trump policies would have led to economic prosperity uh, in the long term, given some of the really negative effects of the trade war. What do you make of that, Adam? Well, I think most people don't really think long term when it comes to economics and think in the now. Right now, yeah. my spending money, uh, you know, to fill up my tank is costing me near 100 bucks. That's the reality. So people are thinking about the now. And if this continues um, into the midterms and beyond, um, I really don't see them getting behind Joe Biden because he will have the image of I did that, just like the stickers that are on gas pumps. That will be what he represents. Whether that's fair or not is a different story, but that's the perception that will be given. So I guess I have to push yeah. back a little bit. I don't know if I entirely agree that if it weren't for COVID, Trump would be in office. I actually think a significant amount of people wanted Trump out, it's specifically not because of this economic policy, but because of his rhetoric and, um, you know, hate people felt like he was emboldening. I think a lot of people voted not for Joe Biden, but against Donald Trump. I think we had the largest voter turnout for that reason. And I think if you look at it in that lens, it isn't that crazy that people are not that crazy about Biden. I think there were a lot of people who weren't that crazy about Biden in the first place, but they thought, you know what, last year two evils. We need to get Trump out of office. That's more important. And I do think there is a world where people still hold on to that. I think people are still, you know, scared of Trump or another Trump world coming back. So I don't think it's 
inconceivable that if Biden and Trump were to run against each other, you could still see maybe not the same kind of voter turnout. I don't know if we could have mobilized the same kind of passion. But I do think there are people mm -hmm. that are very, very steadfast, do not want Trump in office and thinks it's very dangerous, especially when you consider things like January 6th and we have the hearings on that happening now. You know, what do you think? What do you think, Colin? Well, yeah, uh, look, I think oops. I think there's some truth to that. And, and you know, I think the fact that, you know, Joe Biden was in a position to run against the Donald Trump as the position as the person who could kind of swing this middle of the road voter who was mm -hmm. a disaffected Republican because of things like the rhetoric. I, I still think we, we need to address one thing here is if mm -hmm. you look at all polling and I'm looking at it daily across the country. People think their personal economic situation is improving. They say, yeah, I am doing OK. But I think the larger you know, economy as a whole maybe is not doing so good, right? And what that means is that there is a lack of communication about positive things that are occurring. And, and look, Adam is right, you are, you're absolutely right. There are certain things that are happening in individuals' lives that you're gonna get tagged with whether you're, you have the ability to change them or not, such as gas prices. And that's just the environment you have to deal with. But if you are not right. communicating robustly enough to make your own case, which I would argue the administration has been very poor at doing, um, you know, then you're never going to have a chance against people who wake up every day, news outlets that wake up every day, whose sole purpose is not necessarily to give you the facts, but just to damage the incumbent administration. Yeah. Adam, I'm so curious, which we're in a time of, you know, economic ruin right now, which I think many people feel on a very visceral level. Uh, are there any Republicans who you think are going to be swinging into this next presidential election uh, with really positive messages they're touting? Do you have any optimism whatsoever on that front? Yes, very small optimism, but I do. Um, so to make clear, I don't think either Joe Biden or Donald Trump should run. Ooh. I think Donald Trump <laughs> Love is way too divisive. Mm -hmm. um, even if I was someone who agreed with some of his policies, I think he's way too vis divisive of a character. Yeah. He would bring out way too many people to vote against him. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a benefit for the, for the country. Yeah. Um, I'm also not for Joe Biden. I didn't think Joe Biden should have ran for office in the first place. I, I think he's much been propped up by the political establishment and put into office when clearly there's a cognitive dis, uh, decline with him. He hasn't been the nice Joe Biden that he promised to be. He's been just as divisive as any other uh, politician. Um, I personally think that Ron DeSantis should run. He is someone, and this is just from my perspective as far as someone who wants to uh, keep, keep in store more conservative values because I'm more conservative minded while also uh, uplifting, you know, traditionally liberal values like the freedom of speech and things of that nature. Yeah. I know he's not everyone's favorite person. Sure but not. what I will say is that I think that Ron DeSantis is probably one of the most savviest politicians, at least on the Republican end, that I've seen in a long time. I don't like anybody else, to be honest with you, when it comes to the Republican Party. Very few. Um, I think most of them are very pro-war. Um, much of the normalcy, much of just being obstructionist. Um, and I don't, I, that, that part of the Republican Party doesn't appeal to me. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, if, if Donald Trump didn't run for office, which he more than likely will, um, I'd be all behind Ron DeSantis. Yeah, DeSantis is an interesting, um, you know, possibility because his, his pandemic policy has actually been uh, fairly decent. A lot of his economic policies are really decent, but then he does very consistently embroil himself in culture war scandals uh, in a way that I think is, is really terribly off-putting. Thank you guys both so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Travelers coming Thank to you. the U.S. will no longer have to show proof of a negative COVID test. We'll weigh in on that next.
passengers traveling abroad no longer have to present a negative COVID-19 test before re-entering the United States. For the last year, airline passengers had to obtain a negative COVID test within 24 hours of boarding. Under the new guidance, all travelers, U.S. citizens or not, can come in without testing negative. The CDC still maintains that the new policy could be reversed, but for now, travelers can say good riddance. What do you think of this? Is this a welcome change? Have no. you been traveling lately? I have. Yeah, I, I went home to the Bahamas in uh -huh. February and I had to do COVID tests in and out. Um, I actually think this is another continuation of, you know, dropping all the policies in place that protect us from COVID and then complaining and being shocked that we continue to deal with COVID. Um, I understand why people, that it's inconvenient. I understand that. I understand people are over, you know, testing, they're over masks and all these different things. But I just don't think uh, the inconvenience or even maybe like marginal costs outweigh the benefits of doing the tests. But I know you probably disagree. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing that I'm, I'm very curious about is there was an inconsistency inherent in the way that this was enforce. For example, I did a land crossing between Tijuana and California merely a few months ago. Mm -hmm. For the land crossing from Mexico to the United States, I didn't have to present a negative test. Yeah. And yet flying two weeks ago you from did. Oaxaca to Texas, Mexico and the U.S., once again, I didn't yeah. have to present it. Um, and so I could understand the logic there, given that there are so many people, um, both Mexicans and Americans, who cross the, the land border frequently uh, for work to the yeah. point where it would be pretty unfeasible to test on a regular basis. But especially for, for tourists and for people who are just, just going back and forth, it doesn't make sense that this policy like was enforced in that manner. Uh, and then also just in terms of like controlling, like is, is the concept to control the amount of COVID that courses through the U.S.? Because, I mean, I have some bad news on that front. Or is the concept to ensure that people aren't on airplanes while yeah. testing uh, positive? Because if so, I mean, we ought to extend that policy for domestic flights, but we don't. So I don't There's disagree with you there. Here. I do not disagree with you. I think it's been very inconsistent. I think we've seen so many inconsistencies. It's even hard to have faith in the CDC and a lot of these people pushing COVID policies at this point. I don't disagree, yeah. but I don't think it means that we should level down. I think it probably means that we should level up. I think the reality is we're What does not that look like? And what would the like, what would the ideal regiment be and with what goal in mind? I think if you're traveling, you need a test. I think if you're traveling yeah. in and out of place, especially at least, and I know how I would feel about this as a Bahamian citizen, don't mm -hmm. roll up in my country, <laughs> uh, tested positive for COVID and spreading it around my little island nation. So, mm -hmm. you know, on the flip side, I think uh, we probably should be doing more to minimize um, the spread and, and transaction of COVID. But I do agree with you that we are being so inconsistent that it's probably futile. And maybe yeah. I could see why you would feel, you know, this policy here isn't going to do a good job. Uh, it's not doing a good job of doing that since we're not doing it in so many other places. And I can understand that argument for why, but as yeah. an overall general, I think we should have more policies. You see, I'm very much of the mindset, and I, I, I this is actually a huge evolution in my beliefs because at the very beginning, I was very much like the sort of technocratic test trace isolate. The U.S. needs to build out a really strong testing capacity. Um, perhaps the government should even distribute high-quality masks to, to yeah. people. That way they're actually focused on mask quality. That's sort of how I, I thought about it in the beginning, and I've really, really changed my thinking, especially looking at how people actually operate in the wild, yeah. which is different than how I wish they would operate. Yes. Uh, and I'm just pretty resigned to the fact uh, that COVID is going to be endemic yeah. and that there's not that much we can do other than continue to develop um, antiviral treatments like Paxlovid uh, to continue to ensure that people have access to vaccination. Uh, and then to try to make sure that our hospital capacity doesn't get overrun because really people need access to care. But other than that, this is going to be a seasonally circulating thing akin to the flu. And I'm not happy about it because it's yet another thing that can yeah. disrupt our lives and disrupts older people and, and the, the sick and infirm to a greater degree than it, you know, disrupts the rest of our lives. But 
Honestly, I agree with you. I agree with you on a practical level. I honestly do. I get that, especially. And I have had some some laxing in my own views towards, you know, the COVID policies. I know um, maybe a few months ago, even on here, I was like, we're definitely getting another lockdown. We're going to da, 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 da. And I was like, ooh, didn't age well. I don't think we're getting a lockdown. (laughs) I was like, I I don't think we're getting that lockdown. I don't see, not because I don't think we should have, not because I don't think. Oh, uh, you would have been in favor of it. Yeah, I would have been in favor of of another lockdown. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And maybe it's because I know you live between. Don't lock yourself down. I don't (laughs) First of all, I absolutely would. Absolutely would. I work in the public criminal courts, so I absolutely would take another lockdown. Um, So I, I I don't disagree. I think at a practical level, um, you're right. But I do think if we continue laxing, right? We just continue dropping, dropping, dropping policies, and we keep seeing the numbers skyrocket, especially in a place like New York City. But they don't skyrocket. I mean, they're they're in New York, and they're cyclical in a way that doesn't perfectly correspond. That doesn't even correspond well to the lockdowns and to the pandemic suppression measures that we are taking on. Maybe in some places, but I know. Uh, in New York, we have seen with every, you know, when Eric Adams first dropped the mask mandate, we saw our numbers quadruple. You know, we've seen. But we didn't see death toll correspond. We we've seen deaths though. We're seeing we're we, still we, seeing we a lot did, of deaths. We we're still seeing some, a lot of hospital we, cases. But we didn't see the death toll that we would have. If like they're not well correlated. That's sort of the inconvenient truth of all of this. I I don't know if I necessarily agree, but I do I do get where you're coming from. I do think at the at the end of the day, you know. It's easy to look at something on a larger level when it's not impacting you, right? When you're not the mm-hmm. person sick with COVID, when you're not the person who's lost family, when you're, you know, yeah. it's easy to be like. I mean, I, I just want to be clear, like I have. Like, no, no, no. I'm not yeah, even talking about you. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. saying as a general. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, it's easy for us to, you know, think, all right, we're going to be stuck with it. You know, these policies yeah. aren't making too much sense. You see people are still going out. They're not, you know, they're wearing their mask, you know, coming into the restaurant. But once they sit down, they take it off. And I do think there are inconsistent, silly policies. But I do think overall that larger reflection of us, you know, decide we want to move away from it and not take it seriously and drop these policies um, isn't good for us in the long term. But, you know, what do I know? What do I know? I'm not a scientist, but... I think that's a good point. Yeah. What you're saying is that there's, like, there's been a squandering of of trust in our public health institutions and that that does lead to them being sort of feckless and and ineffective going forward. And so what happens if we do have a strain that emerges that's, you know, twice as infectious or, you know, five times as severe there will be this challenge of like, we don't know, we don't have uh, tools in our toolkit to ensure compliance. Right. And so the thing that we've sort of, that's been demonstrated through and through is that people are not particularly uh, compliant and that they're not particularly uh, married to sensible policies. They're not very consistent in their behavior. Yeah. But what happens, you know, now that we know that, what happens if there's a much more serious threat presented to us? I think that's a fair point. Yes. You're like, yes. You're right. Yeah. Okay. But at, the same right time, but at the same time, like I, with this specific thing, I mean, this this is going to be endemic. This is going to be something that we're dealing with for forever, probably. Uh, and the thing that will the yeah. thing that will change, though, is that we will have hopefully vaccines that will be um, strain specific, yeah. which will be wonderful. Um, and we're, we're also getting more and more uh, treatments for people who haven't gotten vaccinated, which right. as much as I think so many people want to do the political point scoring and, you know, ridicule them. Yeah. The fact of the matter is we don't want them to die. Like, that would be really, really good if they didn't die, even if they made stupid choices. Like, you know, and so, <laughs> and so ensuring that we have more and more medical technology that's there to to render aid to them and to treat them is a really, really good thing. And that's, that's something fair. we're seeing a lot of. And the FDA has actually been moving a little bit faster on that. That's like, fair. That's fair. I think I think honestly, I think on a larger point, we definitely agree. Right. I think yeah. I think. I think people have rightfully lost a lot of trust, like I said, in the government and the CDC with this flip-flop of policies. Um, and the FDA, too, which really the, dragged its feet on a lot of the emergency use authorization. 100%. 100%. So, <laughs> coming up, 31 accused white nationalists were arrested and charged with conspiracy to riot. We discussed their alleged plot with an advisor at the National LGBT Chamber of Commerce next. 
Members of the white supremacist Patriot Front group were arrested over the weekend traveling to a gay pride event in Idaho. A concerned citizen called the police to report a, quote, little army of men loading into a moving truck. Officers arrested dozens of Patriot Front members, and they were charged with conspiracy to riot. According to officials, the apparent leader of the group carried a seven-page document outlining a detailed operational plan to riot at the Pride event. The men traveled with shin guards, shields, helmets, at least one smoke grenade, and a, quote, long metal pole. Joining us now to discuss is an advisor at the National LGBT Chamber of Commerce, Jonathan Lovitz. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So what do you what do you think right. of the the lunatics? Was this an example of um, the police perhaps acting too aggressively because it seemed as though they were arresting based off of informants and perhaps surveillance that they conducted, but not necessarily um, because these people had yet done anything wrong? What do you think of this? Was this them acting too preemptively or did they strike the right balance here? This was law enforcement doing exactly what we need them to do, which is to keep our community safe. Uh, it is not lost on anyone, especially the LGBT community, that this attack could have very well happened on the exact same day and anniversary of the Pulse nightclub shooting. We are still mourning those 49 lives, and we are still committed to protecting our communities in all 50 states. So the law enforcement, whether state, federal, uh, and all the investigative agencies involved did the right thing. Uh, you listed some of the things that were in that truck with them. Uh, you're not bringing that kind of material to be an innocent bystander. You're there to cause problems and ultimately to cause harm on people uh, simply trying to live their life and celebrate everything that's great about being an out American. So they did what was right. And we can only expect to see more of this kind of small minded violence from small men. It's what they do. Uh, but it is not going to be something that we tolerate and certainly not something that law enforcement is going to allow in this country. That's right. an awfully pro-cop and pro-surveillance stance, though, from somebody who I imagine represents a community that has historically been cracked down on quite hard by cops who are abusing their power. I don't really think this is about surveillance. Conspiracy is a crime, right? We didn't make this up. This isn't new. This isn't a part of the surveillance agency. As a criminal defense attorney, conspiracy, you, have a, you conspire, you have a plan to commit a crime, and in conspiracy, once you make any substantial step towards that plan. Here, we have an army of people. They have planned. They have gotten together. They have, they're dressed similarly. They are coming with uh, weaponry. They have loaded themselves into a van, and they are headed to the location. That is a substantial material step. There's nothing preemptive about it. I wouldn't really contribute that to surveillance. Also, I think a worthy note is this has happened before, right? This has happened a year but before. But we don't, but we don't, we're, we're, was it these same people involved? Like we don't arrest no, but people I'm saying, based off of. But we do arrest yeah, people for conspiracy. Yeah, we do arrest people, but ultimately like what will actually happen is this will percolate through the courts and they'll decide whether this was appropriate to do. But. And I, I think we will find that it will be, right? There's a pride event. First of all, we've had like you said, the Pulse shooting, we have significant reason to believe that uh, Pride events are in danger and we see initiatives like this happening. And I don't think this was the only thing. We've seen, you know, libs of TikTok sharing all these different things happening throughout uh, Pride Month. And we do see people showing up to disrupt these movements. So yeah. I want to say that there is a reason why people are on guard. But in something like this, this is, this is not just... Um, you know, profiling people are assuming it's not like it was just rhetoric and they were talking about it online and then they went to their homes and rounded them up. This is someone calling in because, hey, I saw an army of these people loading into a truck, you know, dressed literally like a little army and they're going towards us. I think that this this is I think this veers off way from just, oh, you know, surveillance or a little tip or the police, you know, engaging in overreach. I think this is something far more significant and substantial. But is it this the type of surveillance like we, we've seen the police historically treat the LGBT community quite poorly? 
The police treat I every mean, every marginal. <laughs> that's absolutely true. Um, I do want to bring our guest in, though. I mean, what do you think about this? Or do you feel in any way squeamish about the fact that this is an example of cops do, in your telling, doing their jobs quite well, which I think you know might be somewhat hard to square with a lot of the other rhetoric surrounding uh, the degree to which we ought to perhaps defund or demilitarize the police. In this example, a relatively militarized police force, in your telling, did the right thing. But there are bystanders who made the call. I think that's exactly relevant. right. We, we, owe, we owe community members, we owe the people who made that phone call, who found that tip, the ones who, just as you said, are looking out for the fact that all marginalized community have been under attack, not only by bad apples in law enforcement, but more importantly, by bad actors in America who want to cause us harm. And that's true of queer people, of black people, of Asians, of those with disabilities, you name it. Uh, and this is an innocent bystander doing the right thing. As a former New Yorker, I know that when you see something, you say something and you let the uh, you let law enforcement do what they have to do. This was not some, uh, this is, the, you know, we can't falsely equivocate this to say some hateful preacher screaming on the sidelines of a pride like we have to deal with all over the country. This was an armed militia of malefactors who wanted to cause real harm. And they were stopped in their tracks before that could happen. That's right. exactly how this is supposed to work. And if they, and it went adjudicated in court, uh, we'll, we will see what happens to them. But people should be on notice that you do not get to terrorize minority communities across America uh, while they're simply trying to live their lives. Also this weekend, more than 400 March for Our Lives rallies took place across the country in response to the deadly shootings in Buffalo, New York and Uvalde, Texas. The organization was launched by survivors of the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in Parkland, Florida. Jonathan, you're from Florida, and you also participated in a March for Our Lives event in Philadelphia. Um, what sort of firsthand experience do you have? Do you, do you support the things that the March for Our Lives folks are, are advocating for, and what specific things do you hope to see accomplished there? Absolutely. As so many of the organizers of March for Our Lives, including many of the young people who are really heroes from the uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting, those survivors are saying, this time feels different. And it does. Look what's happening. This is the first time in years the House, uh, the, the uh, uh, Congress is going to take up four different pieces of legislation, ERPOs, assault bans, safe storage, ending preemption, which is essential. I mean, these are the kinds of common sense absolutely bipartisan public safety measures that we can take and they're coming as a reaction to what's happened we have hit that tipping point and if we continue to do nothing and say that the cost of doing business in america is more dead kids that is not right. the country that any of us want to fight for and live in anymore so i believe that this is a truly wonderful and inspiring awakening moment once again the youth will save us. And how beautiful that it's its young queer kids, young black kids, young kids from every uh, kind of community in America saying, this is not isolated to any one of our neighborhoods. This is happening everywhere. And it's gonna take a solution that protects us everywhere. Which, which I think is also a reflection of how big the problem has gotten right and how long this has gone. That so many, so much of the youth are the main people involved. These are the people that are becoming activists and getting involved early. I know when I was in high school, I was not, you know, at protests. I was not leading marches, you know, and I probably because my lived reality didn't require for it. But now you have the generation of the youth that have been in, in drills. They said they've been in shooting drills since they were in kindergarten. And now they're getting ready to go to college. And so that's what's created this movement. So I think, you know, it's important to recognize that and see how that helps us go forward, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And it's such an important moment for states to be paying attention to what's happening on this this move for, you know, this national momentum around smart, common sense gun safety. No one's coming to take your guns. No one's coming to restrict your rights. They are coming to take warfare off our streets and to make sure that people such as women in domestic abuse situations or minority communities who are facing external threats can take advantage of ERPOs and red flag laws. But these things only work if the states have the mechanisms in place to accept the sort of federal help that's coming through these bills. So it's going to take all 50 states working in concert to say no more dead kids. And I can't believe we're still having to convince (laughs) legislatures that their kids are meant to be protected. I can't think of anything more essential to their job description. And if they don't want to do it, get out of the state houses. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in terms of nobody coming to take your guns, I mean, I guess nobody's coming to take my guns, though it is incredibly hard for me up pregnant uh, mom-to-be to to get my gun license. Uh, NYPD is not giving me a very easy time in terms of allowing me to uh, use my Second Amendment rights to keep a gun uh, in my home. So I'm hopeful that New York will get a little bit more sane on that because I I think I'm highly qualified to protect my family. Um, Thank you so much, Jonathan, for joining us today. I really appreciate your perspective. Uh, We'll have more rising after this. Google has placed an engineer on paid leave after dismissing his claim that its artificial intelligence is able to feel things. The engineer, Blake Lemoyne, was working on Google's language model for dialogue application for Lambda and claimed the system had, quote, a conscience and a soul. (laughs) In discussions with Google, Lemoyne allegedly argued that Lambda was seven or eight years old and wanted the company to get the program's consent to run any experiments. According to the New York Times, these claims were founded on his religious beliefs, and Lemoyne submitted documents to a U.S. senator's office alleging religious discrimination. (laughs) The company's human resources department says this violated their confidentiality policy. But some are saying these conversations might not be legit because the conversations were actually spliced together with dialogue removed and tangents altered. Despite that, many people are calling this astonishing. What do you think of this? I mean, there's there's a few components here. There's the sort of people's concerns about AI sentience and about sort of future technologies and the degree to which they'll change the way we, we do business and, and interact with each other. There's also whether Google was remiss to dismiss him. There's also the... Um, the discrimination claim on his part. What do you think of this? I think this is a crazy man. Really? <laughs> Listen, barring that we are in the beginning of a disaster movie and we're the news people at the beginning of the disaster movie dismissing <laughs> the, the crazy person with the files trying to tell us of the danger to come, barring that scenario, what it sounds like to me is they're in the business of AI, right? Not that I'm necessarily a proponent of us having all these robots. I think they're creepy, but not because I think they're sentient. But it sounds like they created a robot. They created a robot. They gave it this intelligence to act and respond in a particular way. It's doing that well, conceivably. And his response to that is, it's sentient. It has a conscience. It has a soul. We need to ask it for consent. And that is crazy. And I see why Google decided Let's get this little crazy man out of here. That's what it sounds like to me. Well, I'm pretty compelled by by Derek Thompson's point. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a writer for The Atlantic. Um, you know, we're friendly. He's, he's a very good guy. Um, but he made the really good point that presumably, you know, this AI would have the ability to communicate sentience before it actually experiences sentience. And so there's there could possibly be a disconnect between what it claims to be believing or what it claims to be experiencing versus what it actually is. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty compelled by that point, and I tend to be 
pretty anti any sort of hysterical fear mongering about tech because I think it's something where since it's it's so unknown and there's there's a significant like technical gap to our understanding of it, it's easy for people to really assume the worst uh, and get very bent out of shape about it. In terms of the hiring component or the the, the firing component specifically. I always struggle with this a little bit because we don't know what other factors contributed to, like we don't know what other factors um, were part of this employee's record. And perhaps it looks like Google was dismissing him out of hand for this specific thing, when in reality it could just be that he was like kind of a loon in general. Yeah. Uh, we just have no way of knowing. See, I'm not an employment discrimination lawyer, so I won't wade <laughs> into pretending um, to know all the different parameters that could be happening here. But I will say this, I think throughout history we've seen anytime we have a major technological advancements afoot, it's an old school, you know, theory and feeling amongst people to ferret, to ferret and say, you know what, this is somehow, people- We saw this with the Gutenberg printing press. I was gonna say, <laughs> we, we see this about so many things, even, yeah. you know, in vitro, anything, people are so like, you know what I mean? My, oh my gosh, you're playing God, or you're doing these different things. Yeah. So it's not, um, it's not surprising to me, but to me, that's why I don't really think there's a super legitimacy in it, right? We've always seen this, like the smart house movies, you see mm -hmm. people very scared of these robots and AI. And I also think there's a difference between, you know, uh, sentience in a scientific context, context versus how we see it. I don't think, you know, something can be, it understands what we're saying, it's participating. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with him that it's responding or, you know, it's been programmed in a way to perceive different things you might ask it or scenarios you throw at it that it might not have been through. But I don't think that rises to the level of having a soul. And I definitely don't think your belief system that it has a soul rivals now, this is now a religious claim and the job is firing you based on religious grounds. I think yeah. we've made a few leaps. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I mean, the, the whole, I can't even touch the whole insolment argument because it's just like, what could he possibly be talking about? And right. How could he possibly be, be measuring that? Or like, there's... There's a decent amount of evidence mounting to indicate that this person uh, is a little, a little on the loopy side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, yeah, yeah, that's my position on it. I think, um, yeah, I think he's probably a little bit of a, you know, what is the politically correct word? Because I don't want to speak to his mental health. I'm not going to give him a mental health well, diagnosis. So, so I don't, I'm going to say, I'm going to say he's a little off. <laughs> he's a little touched, a little, a little troubled. <laughs> well, it is interesting, though. I think your point of like this is this is a common sentiment that we see. People are fearful of new technologies, and we really need to, um, to some degree, like check our impulses there because yes. I think that leads to almost like what we were talking about at the very beginning of the show in the A block, like people that leads to quick, hasty uh, decision making, hasty policy proposals being passed to attempt to regulate or to curb, um, you know, worst excesses in a given industry. But a lot of the times we're reacting out of uh, from a very emotional place of, of fear, yeah. uh, and and we've seen that that backlash, that tech lash, happen in so many ways. I mean, we see this a little bit right now with the Section 230 debate, yeah. and the degree to which people are sort of interested in um, treating platforms in a different manner than they've historically been treated, and holding platforms accountable for the things that people are posting on them mm -hmm. uh, in a way that could really winnow away at and erode free speech rights, uh, I, which I really concerns me as a civil libertarian. I think I would have maybe a lot more leniency towards him you know when you see it initially you think the argument he's going to make is these beings are sentient so fair yeah. but he's actually not making that argument <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like exactly. he's, he's making a far crazier argument yeah. he's saying he's saying <laughs> i believe that this robot is sentient and has a soul and thus it needs we need consent from the robot to do any of the work that we're doing and i think that he's might be co-opting consent culture <laughs> <laughs> yes is the final for form. the robots for the robots and i can see why <laughs> from google's just in the position if you have a job you got to do the job yeah if they have you there to work on these robots to do certain things and you're talking about oh no we can't do that because we need the robots to consent yeah how do they get things done you might have to <laughs>
Might have to fire you. <laughs> I see it. <laughs> but listen, tomorrow on Rising, Brianna and Liz will be back with another great show for you all. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for watching. It was a delight being with you guys today.